This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. It's Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast together with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott here at the 2018 Barcelona uh, Cognition Brain Technology Summer School. And we're here with Stuart Wilson. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you. And Stuart, you spoke this morning about uh, self-organizing models of brain and behavior. Uh, so why do you think self-organization is such a useful concept to think about brain and behavior? Uh, I So I think that self-organization is the kind of, is one half of how the natural system works. Uh, so um, I, I think that uh, the forms that are generated by natural systems and then uh, and that evolve and become the, the things that surround us in the natural world, uh, do so as a combination of uh, the intrinsic properties of self-organizing systems and uh, the forces of natural selection. And I think that we need to kind of think about both of those things and how they interact to fully understand um, patterns that we see around us in the natural world. So how would we define self-organization for practical purposes? Um, so there are lots of def definitions of self-organization from different fields, uh, from physics, thermodynamics, people talk about phase transitions, and uh, from the uh, world of sort of complex systems, um, people talk about um, sort of edge of chaos dynamics. Um, I define self-organization uh, as uh, where you have a system of uh, individually uh, simple components interacting in individually simple ways such that collectively they generate a pattern that is uh, less simple than those individual uh, interactions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you, you started your talk referring to this, this paper by Jonas and Kurling about what a neuroscientist could understand the microprocessor. Yes. So. I always took it a bit more like, okay, that's funny, but we've been talking about that for decades, so okay. Sure. Uh, so why do you find that useful as a starting <coughs> point? It's okay, Tony. You're okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so poisoning me with yeah. this coffee. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, it really is a problem. You're up to me. So, so why, why did you feel that was a good start? Uh, I think... Um, so I don't agree with everything in that paper, but I think that it represents an, a really interesting kind of thought experiment. With, and I think it's important for uh, modelers in particular, in particular to think about the level at which we're uh, modeling the systems that we're interested in. Um, so, um, so for me, the right level of modeling for asking the kinds of questions that I'm interested in um, is to actually try and construct the simplest kind of model that can account for the complexities of the the, 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 the thing in the natural world that you're trying to explain. Um, and, and I think that sometimes um, the, by pursuing models which are as complicated in their uh, formulation as the system that you're trying to explain, I think that you can lose some uh, uh, level of understanding in constructing those kinds of models. Um, I think we, we need a mixture of both, mm -hmm. but the thing that I like to, 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 to try and guide my thinking is, um, is to create models which are as simple as possible to explain complicated things. Yeah. But another message could be you say, okay, we want to do hypothesis testing, if there's no hypothesis, you're lost. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, which yeah. is, of course, something that's not necessarily that new as an insight. That's right. Um, but and the other thing that's interesting is, of course, that you step into the self-organization uh, boat, if you want. Yeah. Which, of course, uh, when I was your age, there was a big emerging thing, right? That's yeah. when artificial life came up, sort of in the late 80s, early 90s. was a big hope, also with, with people like Stuart Kaufman yeah. uh, being very vocal about that. And also in your work, at least in your talk, you, you, you confess to sort of have taken a lot of ideas from Kaufman, right? Absolutely, so do you really, yeah. so you really see a continuity of ideas from 80s till now, or do you think there were some transitions? 
Um, I think there have been fashions uh, 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 in, in, in the way that people have thought about these ideas, and a lot of that has been determined by computing power that's been available. Uh, things have fallen in and out of fashion with neural networks and, um, and, and artificial life at different times and so on. Um, I think that what I've tried to do, so I was, I was quite young when, when you were reading those, <laughs> when you were reading those books, um, and, and the first time I read them, they really stuck. So Stuart Kaufman's description of, description of how the natural world self-organizes and then selection operates on that, that has stuck with me as a kind of way of thinking about the world right the way through you know, my, my education and, and, and now to the, to the point where I'm able to, to do some research on that stuff. Um, and so I think, I think I've, been, I've been not influenced by uh, fashion so much as you know I've just been I've been fascinated by James Gleick's description of chaos Stuart mm-hmm. Kaufman's description of self-organization right. selection and it's mm-hmm. just stayed with me uh, well, for me at the time it was more like uh, Prigogine right mm-hmm. His origins uh, then Walter Freeman applying it to the brain right dynamical systems yep. and then uh, Maturana Varela with respect to, to behavior yep. right this, yep. this stood out more and more for me um, yeah, I'm I'm not quite as old as Paul, but <laughs> at least a week. You might not say it, um, but uh, I do also remember being enthusiastic about uh, these approaches. But um, uh, I think looking back, we can say that they haven't had the impact in uh, neuroscience that we expected them to. Um, so, uh, and uh, you know, I, I did a review chapter for the Living Machines book about this, and really. Uh, the number of papers that uh, take this approach and use it in a serious way to try and understand brain evolution and development is is really rather small. Uh, and the people that have uh, been uh, pioneering in that area have you know did some work and then moved away. You know I think they find it very challenging. So you know what is the scope now for? I mean, why is it challenging? And what is the scope for? for t- taking on the enterprise again and doing it now? I think that's very hard. <laughs> well, there must be a reason why you think it's worth, worth picking that up. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so I, I think that what, is, that, that what is really difficult about this stuff is that, is that the, the work that was done originally was so concrete and so well done that, that I think you have to have a level of uh, um, sort of confidence with mathematics and with physics in order to make progress in those fields, but I think that um, as a with for somebody who has biological questions in their mind who wants to ask about you know fitting these these pattern generating systems to real data you know examples of real structures that we see in the natural world, I think that the the, often the people who are interested in those or who have the competencies in those uh, two things are, are not necessarily speaking the same language um, and so uh, you know I'm not a mathematician by training I'm not a physicist by training my background was in sort of psychology and then computer science um, and, and, and it, it is difficult to be in the middle where you where you want your models to be constrained by biological facts um, but you, but in order to, 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 to do to do new things, you need to you know or, or to have new insights. You need to understand the maths and the physics. And I think that's why that's why some of the kind of enthusiasm maybe that comes from from the, from the potential application of these ideas might have kind of gone in and out of fashion. Well, I, I give you my thought after writing that uh, chapter is that. Um, it's difficult to get the right level of description when you do this kind of work because you know, these initial models by Kaufman and other were very abstract. Yes. And, uh, and it goes back to Turing as well, obviously. Yeah. Um, Linda Meyer and people like that. So you've got this fantastic early work which is extremely abstract but shows the power of these general principles. And then people try to apply it to understanding a particular biological system like the brain then you encounter all this rich wealth of data and you don't know which bits are going to help you go from beyond these general principles. Yeah. So, uh, and the problem is that uh, if you 
don't use take enough from the data, then your model's under constraints. So why are people going to take it seriously? Yeah. If you do take too much from the data, then your model is overcomplicated, yeah. and it won't do what it wants you want to do. So this is a, a fine line that you have to walk. So what's what's your strategy? I think I think that's absolutely right. So. So the, the strategy in the project that I'm working with, working on, which is a sort of collaboration between myself as a computationalist and um, uh, Leah Krubitzer and Kelly Huffman in the States, who are biologists, um, the, the, we're sort of asking the question about cortical uh, evolution and development on, on two levels. Uh, one is to try and um, try and recreate uh, in simulation um, the, the kinds of patterns that are out there in the natural world. Um, uh, and, and, and to calibrate that to data from experiments that those guys are uh, conducting um, so that we can end up with a model that we think, you know, describes basically what, what we think has happened in the biological world. And then separately, what I'm really interested in, and we all are, is, is then asking, uh, I think, a question that you've, you've thought about as well, Tony, which is the... Um, what is the, the, the design space um, in which evolution and natural sorry, evolution and development have been interacting? So on the one hand, we kind of want to ask, you know, how do you how how can we account for those patterns that you see there out there in the biology, but also what possible pattern forming, what are the constraints on pattern formation? That uh, what is the design space that, that that evolution and development have been working on? And I think. More of the abstract level of description goes into that second um, pursuit, mapping out the design space of evolution and development, but then calibration to specific experimental results. How does this gene affect this patterning? You know, that's that's the the other half of the of, of what we're doing, which is which is much more grounded in in in, in, in what a biologist can measure. So now to to also add a little bit to Tony's uh, historical summary. If you go back to the early artificial life, genetic algorithms, neural networks, whatever developments, it was very metaphorical, mm -hmm. right? And and it 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 created very simple models, like cellular automata. People are really obsessed with cellular automata yeah. or genetic algorithms mm -hmm. that did things that if you just you know close your eyes a little bit and you sort of uh, squint at them, they might look a little bit that things might look like in some biology book if you also squint your eyes a bit. And um, so, and that gave this illusion of control, right? And uh, now, 20 years later plus, <laughs> it hasn't really panned out, right? So in the, if, you, if you really take as your criteria for a theory to be able to explain predicting control, their progress has been, has been much less, right? But now in your work, you try to, in, improve that by really taking very specific uh, constraints that you want to look at. Okay. So you look also in your, in your talk, you show you take specific brains and you want to model how the maps in those, in the, the cortices of these different brains could develop. Yep. But then maybe it's important, certainly if you want to now leave this bit of metaphorical biology behind and go to real science. Um, so then the question becomes, okay, what, what, what then makes a good model? Right, so because you can also already say you get the variability across species or across mammals, but if I take two exemplars of the same species and I look at the border borders of these maps, that can be rather different, right? So it's not even standardized yep. across these individuals, yep. right? So then the question also first becomes, what's then really our benchmark here, right? What are we shooting for? What is so? What's the benchmark that allows the model to be good enough? Yeah, I. I I don't think I have. I have an opinion rather than an answer to that, but I agree with the perspective that you're taking when you phrase that question. Um, it reminds me of the the, the Rosenbluth and Weiner. Uh, mm -hmm. The best model sure. of a cat is another cat, yeah. preferably the same cat. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really again a, a, a sort of uh, a, a thought experiment. And the, the point of that is that if you if you try and recreate all of the detail of the thing that you're interested in, then then you end up with a model which is as complicated as the thing that you were trying to understand, and and no progress has necessarily been made in the construction of that model. You haven't learnt anything. Um, so for me, the 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 thing I'm interested in is creating 
the model which is as simple as it possibly can be in order to account oh, for the complexity. We're just the wrong side of the equation, right? So what I was asking for, what's your empirical benchmark against which you will now compare your model to say the model is good enough? What's this empirical benchmark? Uh, so it will be a model that can recreate the uh, the, rain, the variability in cortical boundaries, uh, shape and size that you can see across uh, all of the species that have been uh, catalogued to date by their groups and their colleagues. Um, and, um, uh, and once we can do that, and I'm pretty confident that we can do that with fine tuning of parameters, um, because I think that the model that, with, that I described earlier today is, is general enough that, that that should be possible. What I will then try to do is to remove all of the components of that model that are not required in order to account for the variability. And at the point where removing that bit destroys the ability of the model to account for the data, that's where I will have gone too far. And so my benchmark will be something that can, that can, um, that can recreate all of the patterning that we have measured. Um, uh, and then I will refine that model to remove as many of the implicit assumptions in it as possible. So you're saying, I, I fit the model and then I protect against overfitting by minimizing the model. That's right. Right. Yeah. But you also know if I have enough monkeys sitting behind enough computers <laughs> twiddling the parameters of any model, you can get your fit. Right. So would it be relevant to also look at, for instance, the, the temporal dynamics of development that you also have to match? Let's say there will be a certain period of time that an organism needs to develop the map would that be a relevant constraint to insert? Or, as, or yeah. let's say the, 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 the DNA specification of unblind parameters must also, so cannot be more than a certain number of, of, of bases, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah. are there other constraints we got to bring in? Because if you only stick to one level of description, it might still be underdetermined. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yes, I, I think that the, um, the one that it goes back to your one of your com suggested components of your model is, is prediction. That's not the only thing that models are for. They you know, help you reveal simple things as complex and complex things as simple. No, to explain predict control. Okay, um, so prediction I think is the benchmark, right? So, uh, so can I calibrate the models, formulating them as simply as possible to data that exists from experiments that have been done, and can I then? Uh, run a, uh, a broken model, um, generate a prediction about the, the consequence that you'll see in the shape and size of a cortical area, uh, and, uh, and, and, and will that be borne out by the biology when we recreate that simulated experiment uh, in the lab? Um, I think that's, that's, that's the, 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 the kind of, mm -hmm. that's when I'll know that, 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 that the modeling's in a good place, I think. Okay, so now, so now we, we have sort of a, where we want to go, right? So we have mammals, we have neocortex, we have the development of neocortex, different maps of yep. neocortex, where of course also Leah Kubert has, has this nice idea about how this is sort of modular and that this can co-evolve with, yes. with the periphery. And now in some sense you're saying, well, these cortical maps emerge because you have different gradients essentially that, that guide uh, the, the organization of local circuits or how, let's say, thalamic projections will innervate the cortical map. Yeah. and how cortical neurons will connect to each other, right? Yeah. So uh, I could not trivialize this, okay, well, big deal, because the steward is just saying, well, I, I will need as many gradients as I have submaps, and then I'm done. Yes, but that's not, that's, um, that's a departure from, from kind of what I was trying to explain in the talk earlier. So, so in the talk, what I was suggesting is that um, if the patterns of gene expression across the cortex are themselves uh, generated by uh, a self-organizing process, like a reaction diffusion system, which is what I was uh, thinking of earlier, um, then only some patterns will be possible given a, a boundary, a, a cortical boundary shape and a given choice of diffusion constant. Right, so there are kind of two free parameters in the model that I presented earlier at that level of description at least. The boundary shape, the range over which cell, uh, uh, chemicals are signaling to, to one another. And, and what uh, Alan Turing's um, analysis, original analysis, which I'm kind of inheriting 
uh, into the into thinking about uh, the system that I'm working with, what that shows is that there only certain patterns are possible, um, and so so I I'm no more able to sort of hand pick. There's not an infinite space of possible starting conditions for the right. for the model that I run. There are you know there the, the, there are pretty good proofs out there about what what modes these systems will like to be in. What are the low energy states for a self-organizing system? And my bet is that that is what natural selection has been working with. It has been finding those low energy states and cobbling them together in ways that that enable an animal to, to better adapt to its environment. And I think at that level of description, you know, it's not a free-for-all in terms of parameter tuning. Right. So I really appreciate that in your, in your model, right? Because this was really a transition. I mean, previous models, that you described um, very much rely on that prior of predefined gradients, and then in some sense you can get away with a lot, yeah. right? And also you can get something that looks like working yeah. out quite easily. Yeah. But indeed, I think you, you you changed that game quite a bit by really removing that prior now and making it part of the self-organizing process. Thank right? you. And but but now, um, what do we really know about the temporal dynamics or the spatial temporal dynamics of these gradients in the developing brain? Yeah. How rapidly are they expressed? How rapidly do they diffuse? How stable are they? Yeah, I think I think I'm going to get myself into trouble trying to answer that question because the truth is that my You're this is where my knowledge. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, one thing that I find that I find really interesting in the context of of, of, of that um, is, is is inheriting from a paper by Jacob Antonio and Jeff Goodhill in post computational biology, of, um, 2010, I think. Um, where they summarized uh, a bunch of um, biological facts that were already out there in a nice model. Um, and what they, what they describe is a, is a kind of minimal network of five genes. Um, so FGF8, EMX2, PAC6, TF1, SP8, all, all wonderful names. Um, and uh, what they, they observe is that, um, that at embryonic day eight in a mouse, only FGF8 is expressed in only the anterior pole of the developing uh, cortical tissue, and from and that we don't know how, or well, I don't know how FGF8 comes to be expressed there. But when it is, you then have a kind of cascade of interactions that that flip these other genes on and off, such that they end up forming a, a, a patterning of, of of gradients, which could potentially be used as a coordinate system for guiding thalamocortical innovation, mm -hmm. and that happens over the range of maybe 10, 15 days or so, uh, I think, in the mm -hmm. in the development of the mouse cortex, and so so it's uh, I think what happens is you've got some kind of uh, signal that's extrinsic to that network of those five genes. That, that triggers an event which leads to a self-organizing process from which these complementary gene expression gradients fall. Um, and, and yeah, that's, it's, that's a few, uh, over the course of a few days. Um, the other th th sort of thing that, that, that I'm interested in uh, in the context of your question is um, Kaufman's original uh, description of how these, uh, how these gradients unfold in the, uh, in the embryonic development of the Drosophila uh, egg, um, uh, um, and what he imagined is that that as the tissue grows, the relationship between the boundary shape and the range over which cells are communicating by diffusion uh, or chemical signaling, um, that 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 flips the the self organization into between a set of predefined modes. So when the tissue is small relative to the uh, to the, the diffusion size, um, the mode will be a kind of low mode. You'll get a gradient from front to back, and that's the gives you the distinction between the, the animal's head and its tail. Um, and then as the tissue as the egg grows, the that same process now likes to be in a mode where uh, to, to have more modes. Uh, imprinted on the tissue and that gives you then a separation of the uh, sort of the, 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 the lateralization of the body and then as the thing continues to grow the relationship between chemical diffusion and tissue size uh, keeps uh, flipping from into successive modes and from there you get the kind of more fine-grained structure of the 
uh, of, of the animal being specified. Um, and so I think there is a there is a place for thinking about the time course of these developmental um, uh, events unfolding, which is neatly captured by by, by that kind of uh, reaction diffusion formalism, um, which I didn't, which I haven't really touched on in my uh, work yet, which has mostly been about uh, uh, you know considering how uh, spatial patterns form. Uh, so it's so in the mammalian brain, w w is it like more or less five gradients, or is it more? What's the set? Uh, in, des in descriptions I've seen from people who are more biologically informed than mm. I am, um, there is, uh, so um, uh, Erman Trout's claim, who, whose who's, who's work I piggybacked off today, um, was that a minimal circuitry um, would involve three genes, um, which is FGF8, BMX2 and PAC6. Um, other descriptions have defined a minimal gene interaction network, which which encompasses five. Uh, when I talked to Lynn Krubitzer about this, um, she's not impressed by the claim that only five genes are involved. Um, I think there are, you know, at least you know, 20, 30 or so. Uh, and of course, the the, um, the 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 genes that regulate F and efferin um, expression uh, are, um, are also uh, uh, sort of. Uh, players as well. And are these genes again controlled by master genes? Is it really a regulated expression pattern or they work independently? Um, I don't know. My claim... Because I would predict in your case you would need some sort of controlled expression of your gradients, right? If they would go off independently that yeah. might lead to very different kinds of map organization. The, so. So, so there have been experiments done, but, and and the the way that you arrive at a kind of description of there being three main genes that are involved: EMX, PAX, and and um, uh, and, and FGF eight. Um, the way you arrive at that is to do knockout uh, experiments, and um, and if you if you knock out PAX six, there's not much uh, of an impact on FGF eight. There's, there is a bit, but, but you'll still get patterning. If you knock out EMX2, you'll get no interaction between PAX6 and FGF8, uh, but you'll still get patterning, it'll be a little bit disturbed. If you knock out the, tr the trans transcription factor um, FGF8, the morphogen FGF8, you'll get no patterning or very disturbed patterning. And so I think that the, the, the picture of exactly how this, how these genes interact with one another to affect patterning on the cortex is, you know, is that that's a question that develop, developmental neurobiologists have been um, have been, you know, exp uh, working on, and they 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 you know they um, have been creating a picture of this gene interaction network, which I'm you know taking from the textbooks and representing in uh, in, in my equations at some level. Um, what, but what I'm trying to do a little bit beyond that is to ask about the space of all possible gene interaction networks. You know, which, you know, okay, in 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 uh, the examples of animals with cortical patterning that we have on planet Earth at the moment, uh, the you know the network looks like this. But but does it have to look like this? Does it matter that it's specifically those genes that are talking to each other, or is it just that you know you need to have um, uh, uh, you need to have a minimal network that comprises X genes of which there are N interactions between them. You know, what are the general principles of constructing pattern forming, uh, pattern constraining gene interaction networks? Um, I think that's a separate question from what happens in the mouse brain on planet Earth in 2018. Right. So that was extremely yeah. long question. I mean, I think it. Uh uh, I, I like the approach, but I, to be devil's advocate, I think that the um, taking this, the constraint of cortical area and the shape of the cortical area in the adult animal, uh, I mean, th uh, I can, there, there are obvious problems in that. One is, you know, it assumes aerialization is a late process, that, you know, that shape happens first. Yeah. It also assumes that... Um, 
aerialization is certainly complete in in in, junior, in young animals sort of maybe uh, maybe they're already born but you know a few weeks old at most uh, and they still have a lot of growing to do including growing brain yeah. so um, I mean are those assumptions borne out you know so uh, so that's a really important observation and but I'd say it's an observation of the the model that I presented at the stage of development of which I'm at right yes um, uh, I I do not believe that the, so my assumption the assumption that's represented the model I presented is that only the boundary shape and the diffusion constants uh, specify the you know the, the process by which aerial aerialization uh, occurs um, and I showed examples of okay if you have different boundary shapes as you see in different species then how do they constrain these processes and generate different patterns I uh, personally agree with you that the um, that the model is not complete as I presented it today, in the sense that the um, that the, the the boundary itself, uh, you know, changes over time. It expands uh, both in size and it changes in, in in shape, presumably under the influence of genetic processes which are not in my model, mm. um, and, and and I haven't yet posed that question of the system that I've I've developed. So. Um, so I don't think that the adult boundary shape on its own is enough, but I also what we're basically working on now is is a is a is a is a way of thinking about the how the shape morphs from some initial probably quite regular shape into the um, the adult shape, and we want to build that into the into the process of development. The what we're and this is where the uh, collaborators in UC Davis and UC Riverside come in because they are. Um, currently measuring the uh, boundary shapes and the efferent expression uh, and gene expression patterns across those shapes at different points in development and in different species. So those, so we don't have data, or I don't have uh, knowledge of data on the changing boundary shapes during embryonic development, but we're collecting that as part of the project. And, and as that data comes in, that can then be used as a, an additional set of constraints on the model. Okay, but I mean, could you imagine a version of the model where boundary boundary shape is an emergent property of the model? You know, once it's appropriately defined, you take it out altogether as a constraint. And you, I mean, obviously, you know, constraints such as the size of the skull. But I mean, all of these things are changing yeah. in time. So it's and uh, you know, it's interesting if you look at the the literature uh, on. Uh, for example, uh, experiments with uh, mutant mice, you know, their ability to flip one gene and see some cascade of interactions with the developmental process that, that, that you know that compensate for the effect of flipping that gene, so that rather than creating an animal that dies, you know, there are the, the the developmental process adjusts to incorporate that gene flipping. Yeah, I can I can imagine that. Um, I can't. I can't imagine to the level at which I would type code into a computer and recreate that process. I, we haven't done that uh, yet, um, but it's something that, that we want to do. So just to give you a kind of idea, so, so a lot of the work we've done as well as the sort of mathematics and the, you know, trying to understand the biology through, through, through the modeling um, is, is the software development, um, which has been done by Seth James in Sheffield. Um, we have a, this kind of method for simulating uh, these um, um, self-organizing processes on a hexagonal lattice with an arbitrary boundary shape. So what we do is we take a drawing that's been made by a, a biologist um, in vector graphics and we take that boundary shape, we cut out of a hexagonal lattice a, uh, a simulation domain and then we run the, 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 the evolution of the equations on that domain. There is, so there's nothing, so we have a, a set of software tools that allow us to simulate self-organizing processes on any boundary shape that you could imagine, filling in the details of what that boundary shape should be for, to run a particular simulated experiment or to, you know, somehow we need to define what those boundaries are. Um, and at the moment we're doing it by drawings, but I'd certainly be interested in uh, perhaps talking to you a little bit more about uh, to get your thoughts on how, um, on how, the biology 
shapes the boundary. At the moment, we're, we're saying that a biologist gives us a drawing of a boundary, and that's our constraints on the, the model. I think you're, you're right, the biology also plays around with boundary shape in a way that, that I don't have a set of formal, I don't have a formal model of that process. So the, um, you, know, you showed us these pictures of different mammals that you are looking to fit the brain to, and you know, yeah. there's a huge diversity of different animals, and, and if we're, particularly if we're looking at the uh, sensory and motor areas of the brain, very much the uh, morphology of the animal, its lifestyle, yeah. uh, uh, largely predicts uh, the size of some of these areas. Yeah. You know, if you get a um, blind mole rat, yeah. huge tactile area, now um, or a squirrel, highly visual animal. So those are other constraints on your model. So how rich do you want to go in terms of incorporating those kinds of constraints? I mean, what can you do to sort of take the model towards being more realistic in terms of of uh, reflecting what's happening in terms of the evolving lifestyle of the animal? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, so I'll sort of answer that on two fronts if I can. So, so one is that there is nothing about the model which, uh, as I've described it today, is very that that that. Um, that um, excludes the possibility of, of thinking about uh, stimulus-driven um, processes. Um, so, so, um, so, for example, I showed um, patterns of orientation maps forming within, within the boundaries that I showed, and that model was based on a model by Fred Wolf. Um, it's self-organizing, but it is self-organizing under the influence of um, sensory input. So that model was uh, on each time step you have the self-organizing dynamics uh, are adjusting the receptive fields towards the direction of the current input pattern. And you make a choice as a modeler about how you think those, that where those input patterns come from. Do, they, do you take them from natural image statistics, for example, is one thing that you can do. Um, and if you bias the input statistics to the model, you'll get a different uh, organization uh, at the other end, which represents those 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 biases in the input statistics. Um, so there's nothing about the modeling at the moment which um, which 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 um, closes the description of how the functional organization emerges from the outside world. Um, the the uh, other uh, kind of aspect of that is some of my other work, which is uh, where we're trying to imagine um, where the behavioral constraints on uh, on on the, the sensory inputs that come into the brain you know how does the behavior of the animal uh, constrain the nature of its developmental experiences which are then driving these uh, these 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 um, uh, self-organizing process in the brain um, and for that my approach has been to think about uh, collective behavior in um, animal groups uh, specifically as, as, as you're aware of um, uh, work on rodent huddling um, which I've described as a self-organizing process where the individual animals are competing for nice warm locations in the center of the huddle, but in doing so are crashing into each other and, um, and having uh, contingencies between their visual input, their somatosensory input, the noises they hear from inside the huddle being determined by, in that case, one environmental parameter, which is the temperature of the environment. Um, and, and I think... Um, I think it's it's kind of interesting to 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 think about the the organisation of the brain uh, and the self organisation of the brain during development as being something which is coupled to the to the body morphology, which uh, determines the uh, interaction that the body has with its uh, environment, uh, which includes the physical environment, and in the case of huddling, also the kind of uh, social. Uh, Context in which uh, the animal is developing. Yeah, but then you seem to be moving also more to sort of epigenetic view on this, right? And yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have to also specify what then these feedback mechanisms might be. Yeah. To your so, to your map formation. Yeah. So I think so. So the, the reason why I'd want to go as far as connecting things to the the sort of huddling work is because in that context, it is very easy, very clear to define what natural selection should be caring about. And I think maybe that's at the crux of some of these, some of, the, some of this discussion is, 
you know, if we're going to, uh, we, we haven't yet said why evolution should try and make one pattern versus another. What is it that's good about some patterns uh, in the brain versus others? And that's a question that I've been uh, sort of struggling with personally for, for a long time. It's, you know, if you wanted to get an evolutionary algorithm to constrain the, you know, the, the initial conditions of your self-organizing processes, what's the fitness function? Um, and I think uh, in the context of the huddling, the fitness function is actually reasonably clear. The animal that um, that uh, that exploits self-organizing interactions from contact with the slitter mates, such that it uses less energy, uh, uh, so such that it minimizes its metabolic uh, costs in doing so, uh, it should be one that is more um, favored by natural selection. Um, so that's, I think, ultimately everything needs to be... Yeah, but that's circular almost. That is circular, right? Because uh, in the end, that would mean that we don't huddle, but everyone stands on top of each other or something, because all the huddlers, the, the, ghost, the guys who go to the center win. So no one stands at the periphery. But there are two... So in, Yeah, that's really interesting, but there are two ways that you can win. So you can either win and be at the center because... Um, because you generate lots of heat and you attract others to cluster around you, which is individually expensive to you, um, but is beneficial to the group. Or you can be at the, you can win because you can, because you can exploit the heat that's generated by those that are at the center. So what you have in the huddle is this kind of balance of cooperation and competition, um, which I think selection should care about. Um, because there is there is a good but there is there is the problem we try to solve I think in the end is where the boundary conditions where the boundaries come from in your model yeah. right yeah. because that's now the assumption you don't assume the whole gradient but you do assume boundaries yes and I don't really see how your huddling an analogy helps us to solve that problem. Yeah, I've diverged far too far away from what we were talking <laughs> so, about. <laughs> no, but also in your, in your lecture, that huddling came up, Yeah. and also then I didn't really see the link. And then, of course, you can say, well, there are self-organizing processes, and they might be driven by simple by simple rules and leading to complex results. But still, now, we discussed this earlier, right? So the, yeah. the old models made assumptions about whole gradients. Yeah. Then you make the next step and say, no, no, gradients are part of the self-organizing process, and I can get away, I can, I can get rid of them, as long as I still define their boundaries. Yes. Right? yes. So now I could say, well, you know, you got from the, uh, the panel to the fire, because you still explain now where the boundaries come from. Yeah. Huddling or no huddling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, let's ignore huddling. For <laughs> so, 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 okay, where, so, so how are we going to solve this? Uh, I think I have to accept that that is that's where we've got to in in in, in, in what I've been considering. Because today. I so correctly, your the boundary is the is the final, the stable point of the map, right? That's what the boundary defines. Uh, sorry, but there are two levels of, of boundary. There's okay. the, the 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 overall boundary, mm -hmm. which is the the edge of the cortex, mm -hmm. if you like. And then within that, we have the boundaries of the different, of the different domains. Right, that, exactly. So, so, uh, at, at, so my, my, my sort of claim in, in, in the talk today was that, that what we have in this model is a description where um, there are a bunch of constants that go into the parameters of the model, um, diffusion constants mostly in coupling strengths between genes that are interacting in the network and so on. Um, and that in addition to that choice of uh, those, that choice of parameter values, all kind of scalar numbers, which I think could be uh, sort of specified by the, the genetic code, if you like. In addition to that, there is the shape of the cortex, um, which imposes uh, a boundary condition on all of those um, mm -hmm. self-organizing processes. Um, and uh, that is as far as I've got. I, I agree with, uh, with, with Tony that there's a step further if we really want to pin everything down to to the level at which natural selection operates on this, which is tinkering with the DNA, then we need to uh, think about how the 
uh, the, the DNA is, is defining that boundary and that boundary which changes in shape and size over the developmental period. So that's, there's, a, there's, an, there's another level of kind of, if you like, reducing the system onto a, onto a, a, a genetic code which I haven't done yet, um, and, and and for which I don't have clear ideas r right now today in this room about exactly how I would do that. Are it's you considering a, a recapitulation hypothesis? Because if you look at this hierarchy of, of mammalian brains, you could argue, well, from a developmental perspective, the more advanced brains go to a stage that they look somewhat like the simple brain. Yeah. But that would mean that at that stage, they have the boundary conditions of that simple brain, right? So you could that uh, heuristic yeah. then predict that um, as long as you make sure that your developmental trajectory follows roughly the shape of the whole series of mammalian brains, mm. if you want, then I just need the parameter settings of these inter intermediate stages so the, the core process at that developmental stage is the same for yeah. all brains that have that shape or that have that volume. Are yeah, I'm not. No, I'm. I, I see where you're going with that. I think so. My answer to that is no. I, I'm not. I'm not thinking about a recapitulation. <laughs> so I'm not thinking about recapitulation at, at this point because I think that what discriminates in, in, in the model as it's described at the moment, um, what dis discriminates between a you know this spe species X and species Y, is not that species Y that, that emerged later in evolution. Um, had to have gone through the boundary conditions um, uh, of species X in order to get there during its development. I, I mean, that might be true, that's an open question, um, but at the moment the thinking is that species X and species Y have different parameters for the same set of self-organising processes, but they're parameterised slightly differently, constrained by different boundary conditions. Um, which I acknowledge I don't have an explanation for, 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 for genetically how the difference there is specified. Um, but, but we're talking about different initial conditions on the same developmental mechanism, okay. not, not um, sort of, sort of um, uh, having a, scaff a developmental scaffold which is reflect reflecting the evolutionary um, okay. branching. Yeah, I mean, I think we are talking about factors which aren't included in the model, which is, you know, which is a bit mean considering the model's <laughs> only existed for a few months, and and you, you're you're starting from this point, but you know, just just continuing to speculate about that, you know, sort of one of the big differences in mammals is is brain size, and yeah. obviously some of the factors in the kind of models you're talking about are going to be. Uh, size is going to be an important variable, yes. so it's not simply going to scale with a bigger brain. But you could take species which are otherwise similar. I mean, for example, you've got the uh, Brazilian short-tailed opossum, you've got the Virginia uh, opossum, one's bigger. I'm not sure if the brain's a lot bigger, but I think it's a bit bigger. Yeah. And then you've got all sorts of you know, uh, uh, other animals where you can get big and small versions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that that might be another useful parameter to look at, you know, how... how Brain size scaling impacts yeah. on all of this. Yeah. So, so that that is uh, that's a, a really important component of this, and and it and, and that is one of the kind of questions that we want to ask in the bigger picture of this yeah. this project that we started. Um, my uh, understanding from inherited from talking with Leah is that uh, is the differences between um, some pairs of mammals, um, uh, some some relationships uh, between brain size and brain area size scale linearly um, and some do not uh, some scale non-linearly um, and I think um, uh, as we discussed a little bit earlier today I think currently in the formulation of, of, of the modeling there is no there is nothing that I there is no parameter that I can point to in the model which should in some situations give you a linear scaling of brain yeah. area size with brain volume size versus a non-linear scaling. I, I haven't done the experiments with the model to, to test that's true, but I also, in constructing the model, I don't have, it, the model as it stands doesn't have um, a natural kind of parameter that's, that's, that can be tweaked in order to make, on the one hand, it scale linearly, and on the other hand, non-linear. Yeah. And so I think, but but you know, this is where we need to go to the biology. This is where we need to go to the to the data and ask the the, the question. You know, um, 
you know, where might those differences come from? What, what is different about the the relationship between the genes of two species whose for which the the scaling is linear and two species for which the relationship is nonlinear? And you know, what are those differences? And can can we kind of recreate some of those differences? That would be an example of what we talked about earlier, where we said. Um, you know, we're looking for the minimal model that can yeah. account for all of these things, and I and I and I think that at the moment, the model that I presented, probably at present cannot account for those differences, and so so it needs to be refined, um, and I think that's yeah. that's that's kind of, but I think that's the, that's part of the usefulness of modelling here, is that is that you know we can take these inf reasonably informal descriptions about how the biology works. And we can translate those informal assumptions into um, sort of mathematically well-defined uh, representations yeah. of those assumptions, and then we can play around with them, and we can uh, and we can find out what we don't know and what can't. Well, we be we can also do experiments that haven't happened in biology, so we can play with impossible cortical sizes, or you know, uh, we can uh, also just experiment with you know making inventing parameters if you like and seeing what influence that has and then saying well this this parameter might exist in the biology because it would be useful to have a gene that did x yeah. i mean so i mean one of the other things obviously that changes with mammals um is the number of cortical areas you go from about 15 to 200 in, yes. in people so and uh, size is going to be a factor there but not just size i think uh, yeah. dolphins have big brains but they don't have as many cortical areas for the brain size as you yeah. would expect if you looked at humans. Yeah. So what are these factors that that impact on aerialization in that sense of the number of cortical areas? Yeah, I, I think, um, uh, I mean, I have, I'm running a simulation in my head <laughs> as, we, as, as we speak, but the, the kind of natural way to approach that from a modeling perspective, I think is to look at the, the relationship between the um, diffusion constants representing how how local are local interactions versus the size of the the domain so so essentially if you shrink your diffusion constants down um, uh, such that cells are communicating very locally then they will naturally form smaller boundaries um, and and if and if you form smaller boundaries on a big domain you will have more cortical areas by by definition um, so so you know that that is actually the number of the cortical areas that you're going to have is actually a natural very natural question to, to ask with this level of modeling yeah. because because small diffusion big boundary you'll get lots of individual areas so it's exciting because you potentially have a model where you tweak a parameter and turn out another paper <laughs> <laughs> well even more so the next thing we're going to do is is, is think about uh, evolutionary algorithms that can tweak those parameters yeah. and evolve a series oh, no. of papers. <laughs> but, but think about it like this, right? So, so in some of the, what you brought, what you brought into uh, these models of cortical mm -hmm. development are the direction diffusion models hmm. from Alan Turing. Yeah. Who already are speculating along very comparable lines, right? Yeah. About, about pattern formation by natural systems. But that's a long time ago. So it doesn't mean he was wrong. No, no, wait, wait. that's exactly what I want to get to. So, so how much progress have we really made? If you would tell the story to Alan Turing, imagine we could revive him. Yeah. Would he be surprised? Would he be shocked? Or, or no, no, I don't, I don't think so at all. And I, I think, I think what has changed, what is, what, I mean, I, I'm not. I, what I, what I'm doing at the moment is stitching together what I think are brilliant ideas that have been for which the foundations have been laid by very smart people <laughs> um, uh, with, with incredible work. And that includes Ehrman, Bart Ehrman-Trout as well, actually, whose, whose ideas I've been directly stitching together. Um, the, I think that, the, that, there's nothing, that there isn't anything new here. I think probably if you, if you pinned, if you had a very, if you had this level of conversation with many developmental neurobiologists, I think they probably tell you that this is how the thing works. Um, all I'm trying to do is kind of formalise that so that we can ask new questions of that knowledge. Um, I think what has changed though is computing power. So I can run the kind of simulation that I showed today uh, uh, in a few minutes. Um, and Alan Turing would have had to, on the Enigma uh, code breaking machine, would have had to have waited 
waited quite a long time. The Manchester um, Mark II. Or <laughs> yeah, and so, and and I, and I think you know, I mean, the hard work is in doing the analysis really, but but there's a there's a there's now a new era of hard work to do, which is when you when you start connecting these, um, these kind of quite computationally intensive simulations to an evolutionary context because what evolution has been doing has been trying out has been experimenting with these systems on mass for generations and so it, you know it might take me only a couple of minutes to simulate on my computer now but if i want to run a, a sim, a, an evolutionary algorithm which considers uh, you know, generations each uh, comprise thousands of generations comprising thousands of populations of these 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 things to find. Uh, you know, what are the what are the most likely candidates for evolution to come up with? Um, that's the kind of thing that is you know that it's hard work even on on sort of in, in the current context of computational power. But isn't that isn't that a little bit of the curse of, of the new millennial generation of scientists by, not that young, but I mean, this is the future we're looking at, uh, some sort of complacency, right? Because we have this enormous compute power, you can just do dumb things, but you can look at millions of permutations of dumb things and something will happen. Well, Alan Turing 80 years ago, uh, or 70 years ago, had to think very carefully about the problem yeah. to get it right, because yeah. he couldn't afford, it was not even a possibility, to look at millions of permutations of a dumb thing, yeah, right. So, so in that sense, don't you feel there's a bit of a risk here that even with increasing compute power, we start to sacrifice uh, intellectual power? I, I completely agree with you. I, I like to think that I'm part of a special generation that <laughs> has seen the evolution of computers over the, over my lifetime, from when I was interested in computers to now, where I'm able to. You know, to, to develop ideas using computers, um, I, you know, I've been at a, right, uh, a really good time where I've seen crap computers <laughs> start off as being crap, and you have to talk to them on a very basic level um, to to then becoming these things that you can wave your hands at um, and that can you know th think on orders of magnitudes uh, greater than, 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 than we can, um, and so uh, so. Yeah, I think there is yeah, a don't danger. Don't forget the excellent mentor that you've had. Of course, uh, <laughs> you forgot to mention that, Stuart. Yes. Can I? So, so one bit. Can can I? Uh, you know, advice. <laughs> um, code in C plus plus, or code in C, because it's hard work, but it forces you to turn the mathematics of the system that you're studying into if statements and for loops, and and you know. You, then you understand every component of what you're simulating. Um, you know, Python is wonderful for visualization and these other these other things that allow you to talk to your computer in more and more abstract ways are, are great. But I think you know sometimes when you're stitching together computational components that have been run by other people, you you're removing yourself away from the underlying. Assumptions of the, the, the mathematics of the we'll system. We go to an app culture also in programming, right? People take apps and they glue them together and they don't really know yeah. what happens inside. So now they have these patches that they link together. Sure. That's, the, yeah. that's where we're at now. Yeah. And this is indeed a problem. People will be running black boxes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. I've, tried, I've tried not to. I've, I've, you know, I've, been, I've been grinding away with C and it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's done me well. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, so you, you've taken um, uh, Turing's reaction diffusion. Uh, Systems and you've applied it to this new data set that Leia's collecting, and you're also taking Stuart Kaufman's billion nets, and yep. you're trying to plug them as well. So, so, so two of these foundational approaches, yep. if you like, in a life, um, and uh, you know, billion nets are interesting because they are uh, extremely abstract compared to the sort of uh, cellular machinery. Um, which uh, builds animals, you know, yep. but but you know Kaufman and others have argued that it's an appropriate level of abstraction. Yep. But you you are kind of leaping across different levels of abstraction and building yep. these models, yep. picking things which you think might work and are mathematically elegant and so on. What is what's the sort of bigger picture here in terms of a theory of what makes a good theory? You know, sort of you you want to make a minimal theory. Is the building yet 
network the next step in having a minimal theory or was it that it was an elegant abstraction that you can plug in and you can see how to plug it in i mean there's there's a certain amount to which you are you know yeah. driven by the history of your field yeah. to use these tools but maybe you should have we should develop a new set of tools uh, yeah I, I i i i see your point um i think the the the, the overarching idea i mean I, i'm not kind of ready to declare my theory of everything but the <laughs> but the um uh, i'm really disappointed <laughs> but that's why you were here but i think but i think that it that that, that it might touch base with something called the baldwin effect um which is which is the idea that 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 um, things that emerge during the interaction between an organism and its environment, and that can include other agents, um, uh, adaptations to your environment that happen during the lifetime can um, create a sort of scaffold that the genes then climb up upon. So the genes end up specifying uh, initial conditions for interactions with your environment that allow you to get to that within your lifetime of the next generation to get to that um, good adaptation more, more, more quickly than the previous generation and and that it kind of hints of Lamarckism but it's but it's um, which is where the, the, the phenotypic uh, information is communicated back to the genome breaking the Weissman barrier and, and so on um, but it's a kind of loophole um, for, 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 for that if you like which is that organisms that are, that, that, are, that are born with initial conditions that are closer to, uh, to, to, to fully specifying the, 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 the phenotypic form are going to be favoured um, uh, by natural selection. Um, and, and our but wait, isn't this captured in the current discussion on epigenetics, basically on evil, yeah. evil and so on? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bottom but effect to be is a very sort of a caricature of these processes. Yeah, very, very much so. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, but, but, but that is the if there's going to be a kind of uh, sort of level of uh, a type of theory which is going to connect those different levels of modeling, which Tony was asking about the kind of uh, you know abstract Boolean network description of 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 gene network evolution and uh, reaction diffusion, uh, controlled um, developmental processes for pattern formation in the brain. I think uh, you, you, you're correct to point out that I've so far been thinking of the sort of polar ends. One more about the details of individual brains. One about the, the you know asking about the sort of design space in which evolution of development has been occurring. Um, and and I think the the point at which those two things come together will be in the context of cortical map formation, because that's always interested me. But I think I'll, I will be happy at the point where I can um, run a simulation where evolution of development of sp specific cortical plans is, uh, uh, is accelerated by um, uh, the constraints that are imposed that are inherent from self-organization. And I think that that, Will end up looking like a demonstration of the Baldwin effect, where the um, where self-organisation will generate useful patterns uh, in the brain, and the genes over uh, uh, over e on evolutionary timescales will 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 catch up and will become more efficient at guiding the process of self-organisation. That to me will be the Baldwin effect, and that's that's where I think the two levels of modelling might come together. <coughs> Right. But thanks for asking an extremely difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stuart, listen. Um, so you're doing all the right things, right? So, so you made it to BCBT. I mean, it's <laughs> an early pinnacle in your career. Thank you very much. Uh, which is fantastic. You do you do great work. You really work with the with the biologists. You get the data, right? You have to model the data. So you're making all the right moves. Thank you. Um, so, if we would like now to to take this as a paradigm to understand mind brain and behavior what is uh, Stewart's law that we should follow read Kaufman <laughs> <laughs> everyone should go back to Kaufman and Turing and and should think should should try to see the value in the models which are defined at the most abstract levels um, and to 
and to not dismiss them as being abstract and therefore of no consequence to understanding real things that are out there in nature. I think Stuart's law should be to work hard to to think about the details of this natural world that we live in in the context of those abstract models because because I think some of those original thinkers and, and people before Kaufman and Turing, uh, I think they had it right um, and I think you know, uh, I, I think it's I think it's fine for for the rest of us in their wake to be working to catch up in filling in some of the some of the the, 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 the gaps between the data and, and those elegant theories. Yeah. No programming in Python. No, Actually, something you don't know about your your ex mentor or your mentor. Uh, Tony has a secret project. <laughs> What's this? <laughs> He's the monitor of all predictions. Yeah. Okay. So, so basically, everybody we talk to in in our podcast, um, we'll ask to make a prediction, and Tony will go check it. And the thing is, of course, as as it is a British uh, project, it's underfunded, <laughs> so we can only deal right now with labs that are within a ten mile radius of Tony's office. Um, so four years from now, uh, Tony will go and come to your lab, yeah, which will then still be in Sheffield, I'm sure, yeah. And he will come and check whether a prediction you make today will be falsified or verified. Okay. So what's the most central prediction in your research program that you want to see tested in that time frame and that you can communicate it to, to, to Tony in terms of it was false or it was true? Mm, that is a great question. Can I have a moment? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the central prediction so how yeah the level of the modeling how would I know that my model was wrong um, the prediction that I have about the course the the, the 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 potential of this work is that we will be able to account at the resolution of the functional organization of the entire cortex we will be able to account for all of the variation that we see between the species for which the data has been collected um, via different parameterizations of essentially the same model that I presented today. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that I won't have to add any new equations. I might have to tinker a couple of them, but I won't have to add any new equa mm -hmm. equations to the modeling in order to account for that variation to the to the level of detail which is right. currently described. All right, Stuart mm. Wilson, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometrics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.